And let's go ahead and unite our hearts together in prayer before we hear the Word read and preached together this morning. Our great God, we need to hear Your great voice. Our souls are in desperate need this morning, some shrouded in darkness, others languishing because of sin, others languishing with tiredness. We pray that with Your strong voice that You would speak to us by Your Word this morning, that we would find that it revives the soul that is tired, that is trapped, that is cold or lukewarm. And we pray that it might even give life where it is dead this morning. We believe that Your Word works in this way as You attend to it by Your Spirit. And so we pray that You would do so for our good and for Your glory. It's in the strong name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-17, through this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Though the grass withers... And the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You'll remember that we began 1 Timothy last week and opened up chapter 1. And this feels like a little bit of a tangent, and it is a tangent in many ways, that Paul is on here in verses 12 through 13. Uh, But in some ways, it's not a tangent. You'll remember that last week he took the task or he asked 
Timothy to take to task the false teachers that were there in Ephesus who were emphasizing speculations about the law. And as Paul was talking about the law, he was reminding that the law restrains and the law rebukes sinners. And that leads him to this idea of grace. And off he goes on a tangent about grace and speaking about his own life in relation to grace. It is grace that brings forth, as we saw last week, the two markers or the two telltale signs of true preaching and true teaching, and that is that it directs us to faith and it directs us to love. And so as Paul was thinking upon this, his mind runs to grace. And as it runs to grace, he is in other words, trying to say to us that it is grace that generates life. Grace. I was doing a, a Q&A this week with the junior high students uh, in DIG. They wrote on pieces of paper anonymously different questions. It's wonderful to do that. You get to see how their minds are working. Wonderful questions, things that they're wrestling through and thinking through, and then it was my job through the mediation of Mr. Hinckley to, uh, to answer those questions. And one of the great questions that was asked Wednesday night was, Pastor Jason, if you could yell any word in the Bible so that everybody in the world could hear it, what would that word be? Good question. I like it. A little out of the box, in the box, fun. And I said, well, that's very easy. The word that I would yell would be the word grace. I would yell grace. Because to me, grace is the sweetest thing to me in the entire world. Why? Because my heart is the vilest thing to me in the entire world. Grace. That's where Paul's mind has run. He's going to talk about grace. I want to look at this passage this morning with five headings very quickly. What is grace? What is the extent of grace? What is the order of that grace? What are the objects of this grace? And finally, what does grace lead to? So what is grace? What is the extent of grace? What is the order of this grace? What are the objects of this grace? And then finally, what does grace lead to? So Paul begins in verse 13. He tells us, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. So that requires that we ask the question, what is grace? What is it that Paul is referring to that has overflowed to him? What is grace? Well, we will often define grace in our circles as unmerited favor. It's a good definition. I like it. But I think it's not good enough. 
With that kind of definition, it assumes that you and I don't operate from some kind of deficit. It assumes that we are in some kind of neutral state of life with God. Grace is not so much unmerited favor. As Gabe Fleur has said in a book that will be coming out in a couple of months, it's not so much unmerited favor as it is, I think he rightfully says, demerited favor. Not unmerited favor, but demerited favor. We often think that grace is unmerited favor because we see ourselves as some kind of neutral beings that are walking around in this world not caring about God. And then He floods our lives with His love and with His grace. And that would be a kind of unmerited favor. But that is not the picture of us in the Bible. Maybe an illustration would be helpful. I love those videos that are on the internet of someone that goes to a restaurant and they have a waitress and the waitress is serving them throughout the meal and then at the end of that meal they write on the receipt a huge tip for her. They give her a $200 tip. I love those videos. Uh, Maybe I'm sentimental. It's just kind of fun. You, you watch this waitress. She receives a $200 tip and, and she'll just start weeping. There, there's a, just a being overwhelmed with joy. We would say she has just been shocked by, by grace. But that's not biblical grace. Biblical grace would look like this, is that that same waitress doesn't just bring the food to your table late, she doesn't just bring the food to your table burnt, but she drops the food on the floor right in front of your table, then she picks it up and she just smears it all over in her hands, and then she takes all that and smears it all over your face. And as you have mashed potatoes and hot gravy and chicken fried steak plastered to your face, while she's doing that, you with a big smile and with joy hand her $200 as a tip. You'd say she doesn't deserve it. No, what she actually deserves is your wrath in that moment. She actually owes you. That's grace. God in His exceeding kindness gives us a kind of grace that is unlike anything else. Demerited favor while we were yet sinners. Grace is given to haters of God. Not disinterested beings. Grace is given to those who deserve His wrath, have not committed the simple insult of putting mashed potatoes on somebody's face, but have raised their hands as fists before their Maker, committing cosmic rebellion 
That's true of every single one of us that has been born into this world except one. We are all born into this world as fallen children of Adam and every single one of us is committing cosmic rebellion. And it is to such sinners that He shows grace. Demerited favor. As John Newton said, the Scripture assures us that our hearts are by nature like coins from the same mint that are all alike. Jeremiah is clear, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Paul is very clear, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, no, not even one, and yet it is to such heart-sick sinners that God pours out His grace upon. And that's what leads Paul to be so astonished in this passage. Second, let us see the extent of grace. Paul recounts what he was in verse 13. He says that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent opponent. What does he mean? Well, he is looking back on his life before he came to know Christ. And you'll remember that he hated the name of Christ. He persecuted Christ. He was a blasphemer of the name of Christ. It's detailed in Acts 8 by Luke, his traveling companion and his personal biographer. Luke will say this. He says in Luke 8, in Acts 8, he says, Paul was, quote, ravaging the church. Like a tyrant, Luke says, quote, that Paul was going from house to house, dragging out men and women and committing them to prison. He will say in Acts 9-1, Saul, that is Paul's name before he comes to saving faith, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul will say of himself when he's standing in Jerusalem before the Jews in Acts 22, he will say this, I persecuted the way, meaning Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And he will stand by with approval as that first martyr of the faith, Stephen, is stoned to death. He is vile. And yet he receives grace. He receives grace. No doubt, there are some of you in this room this morning, my guess is, in a room of this size with this many people, there are dozens of you that are sitting here this morning and thinking, that sounds all well and good, but you don't know what I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing or what I did last night. I don't. But God does. And He gives grace to such sinners. As Paul says in verse 14, the Lord has an overflowing fountain of grace. He says, it overflowed for me. 
and it overflows for you. Throughout the history of the church, you see this a lot in different theological writings, different sermons in the church. The grace of Christ is often compared to the sun. The sun shines, and as it shines, those, those beams of light, they, they radiate the earth. And, and the sun just keeps shining, and it keeps sending out new beams of light. And it continues to heat the world. And yet, as the sun continues to do so, it never diminishes. It never retreats. It never somehow uses up what it has. And that is Paul's point here. He, he is a fountain of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues to give and to give and to give grace. And it's never diminished. There's never a lack. It's never used up, never dried up. It never becomes less. He just continually floods our life year after year and month after month and week after week and day after day and hour after hour and minute after minute and second after second and all the time in between those seconds. And it doesn't diminish. continually pours out grace upon His people. It is grace upon grace. Third, notice the order of this grace. Grace precedes everything. It precedes faith. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace always precedes faith in God. Grace always precedes love for God. Now, it can be confused in a passage like this if we misunderstand what Paul is saying in verse 13. I think that can be confusing. He says there, I've received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Now, what does Paul mean by this? It can't mean that he was somehow deserving of grace because if he is deserving of grace, then it ceases to be grace. So what is he doing? What He is making a distinction between unintentional sin and intentional sin. And he's saying, look, before I came to know Christ, it was unintentional sin. I didn't actually know when I was persecuting the way, when I was persecuting Christians, when I was blaspheming the name of Christ. It wasn't intentional sin. He's pointing out what we see detailed in the Old Testament in Numbers 15, what uh, in Numbers 15 the law will call high-handed sin, where you commit sin intentionally. It is a high-handed sin. It will go so far as to call it there in Numbers 15 a mistake, that kind of sin that is unintentional. Mistaken sin. And Paul is saying it was unintentional sin. And yet he's not denying that it's sin. It was still sin that he committed. Whether it was unintentional or intentional, it's still sin. And the sin mounted up, and yet he is the recipient of grace. 
And he knows it. Think of Paul's conversion there on the Damascus Road. He is on his way to persecute more Christians. He is not looking for Christ. He is not seeking Christ. He surely has no love for Christ. He has no faith in Christ. And yet what happens? It is grace comes to him. Luke will say there in Acts that suddenly light shone around him. That is out of the blue, because he's not looking for it. Suddenly, light shone around him. And when that light shone around him, then what? Then he hears a voice from the heavens that says, Soul, soul. Paul's name before his conversion. Soul, soul. Why are you persecuting me? Grace comes to him. And then there is faith and love. He is regenerated. And then there is faith and love. Grace is always first. Now often, I think we have a confused understanding of grace by thinking it's some kind of substance that emanates from God, but grace is not so much a thing as it is a person. I think Paul is underscoring that even here as he says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is, grace is tied up with Christ. You can't separate grace from the person of Christ and the work of Christ. They go together. In a very real sense, we could say grace is not a thing. Grace is simply Christ. It's Christ. Fourth, who are the objects of this grace? Who are the objects of this grace? There's that interesting scene where The Pharisees and the scribes come up to Jesus' disciples and they will question Jesus' disciples. The kind of accusatory statement about Jesus where they will ask there in Luke 5, why is it that your Lord eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus will hearing them and knowing what is in their heart, he will reply, those who are well need no physician, no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Paul is very clear here, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He was born to save sinners. He lived to save sinners. He died to save sinners. He came for sinners. How great a sinner? The worst possible sinner you can know. That's what Paul says in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God saved the worst of sinners, Paul is saying. He saved me. 
I'm the foremost of sinners. I threw Christians in prison. I blasphemed the name of Christ. I was happy to see Christians put to death. I'm the foremost of sinners. You know what's interesting, to me at least, in that statement, is that he doesn't use the past tense. He doesn't say, I was the foremost of sinners. He says in the present tense, as he's writing to Timothy, in that very moment that he is writing to Timothy, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. How could Paul ever say that? Because he has a glimpse of his own heart. He knows what he is even as he is writing to Timothy. Some in this room, you say, well, I can't imagine that I am the foremost of sinners. If only you knew my dad. If only you knew my spouse. If only you knew my roommate. Or that student in my class. Or that professor. But it's not because you know this or that person that you can't imagine that you are the foremost sinner. The reason is because you don't know yourself. Paul has a glimpse of his own heart. And he knows because he can see his own heart. He cannot see anybody else's heart. He sees a glimpse of his own heart and he knows that he is the foremost sinner. there's any good that comes from us, the Christian knows it is all by grace. Maturity knows that if there is any fruit born in our lives, it is all by grace. If there is any benefit to those around us for the sake of Christ, it is all by grace. If left to ourselves, we know even if left to ourselves for a split second, we immediately descend into sin. It is all by His grace. What I am in Christ, I am by grace. It is grace upon grace upon grace. We are each weaker than water. And yet as we sung this morning, if we are in Christ, He keeps us. He keeps us by His sovereign, all-powerful grace. That's why Paul erupts with praise at the end. What else are you going to do? Our final point, what grace leads to. Grace leads to praise. Grace leads to doxology. For Paul will say there in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How can you do anything else? 
when you are a recipient of this kind of grace, when you have received that kind of love and mercy, how can you do anything else but desire to offer your body as a living sacrifice of praise to Him where you are a living, breathing, walking doxology? Those who have faced the great darkness of their own hearts are most aware of the shining light of Christ's grace and the response is praise. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, was a man much like the Apostle Paul. He he had a a clear view of his own heart and how dark it was. Remember, John Newton was involved in the African slave trade and will captain a ship that will round up Africans and ship them off to the East Indies and Uh, He will be involved in the slave trade before he comes to saving faith. There's an interesting letter. I love reading the letters of John Newton. There's an interesting letter where there's a man who is writing to John Newton while Newton is pastoring and he's praising Newton for his holiness. He's saying, you're such a great light and such a great example for all of us. And Newton responds to him in this way. He says, Ah, dear sir, what would you have thought of me had you seen me when I lived at the plantations? The sight of me would have been offensive to your eyes and my speech would have struck you with horror. Miserable and despicable in every way, pinched with want and the common mark of scorn and insult, my whole Wretched amusement and pleasure seem to lie in blaspheming the name and person of Jesus and feeding my imagination in schemes of wickedness which I had not opportunity to penetrate. And he's reflecting upon that, and that leads him to erupt with amazement like Paul does. He says, The Lord has since given me a name and a place among His children, favored me with the friendship and love of many of His most honored and excellent people upon earth. And he makes a very interesting comment in that letter. He says that there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't find himself rehearsing in his mind a picture of what he used to be like during that time that he was a slave trader. Every day, he says, that goes through his mind. But he said, this is what happens with it. It's now become a sanctified memory to me. And he says, as I think back every day upon what I once was and what I once looked like, it becomes a sanctified memory where what does it do? It restrains me from entertaining sin. It pushes me away from giving in to temptation. Do you see what he's saying? 
He's looked at the blackness of his heart. He knows what amazing grace he has been given. And he says because of that, he now, in essence, wants to live to the praise and the glory of God. This is a constant reflection in his mind. Then he closes it with this. He's commenting upon whether he does any good. Whether he actually ever does resist temptation. If he does any good for anyone, like this man is commending him for, he says this, if he, meaning Christ, gives me liberty in preaching or enables me to write a letter to please a fellow worm, should it not suffice to keep me from being elated to remember that I am the same person who once delighted to treat him as an imposter. Grace leads to praise, not self-congratulations. A few questions for you and I to close. Do you and I really believe what we sang just last Sunday night, to God be the glory. Do we really believe that verse in God to be the glory? The vilest offender who truly believes. The moment, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Do you actually believe that? Do you acknowledge that grace upsets even as it comforts. It upsets even as it comforts. It is easy to say that we believe God's grace is for all. It is easy to say that we will receive all sinners into the church. But are you and I actually willing would we actually receive any sinner into this church? Does the world around us see this in me, in you, in the church? They saw it in Jesus. In Luke 15, the Pharisees will say in great frustration about Jesus, this Man receives sinners. It is interesting that in the early church, after Saul's, Paul's conversion, that the early church in Acts didn't want to receive him. They couldn't receive that sinner. Everything that he had done to the Christian faith and everything that he had done to their brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't receive this one. And they were wrong. Grace comforts, but it also upsets the comfortable. Grace forms the church, but it also disrupts the church. It is one thing to believe in the doctrine of God's amazing grace. It is quite another to live it. And we want to live it. Second, 
Am I an extender of grace? Does the grace that I show other people shock them? You see, grace is shocking. When you truly understand grace and you truly extend grace, it's shocking. It's otherworldly. I was reading recently about a presbytery. Presbytery is just the churches in a local given area that are bound together in community and connection to one another. There was a presbytery that was, had decided to revisit their ordination exams for pastors. As pastors, we go through a series of ordination exams, written, oral, etc. And they were looking at these exams and thinking, what, how, what should we change as we go forward? And They decided that they would approach one of the old pastors in the presbytery and ask him, what questions should we have on the exam that we don't have on the exam right now? And he replied that they should put the question on the exam for prospective pastors. How many prostitutes do you know? Maybe that's a silly question. Probably doesn't need to go on an exam. But you understand what he was doing. He wanted to know, is this man that's getting ready to be ordained, does he understand the shocking nature of grace? Is he an extender of such grace? Does he seek those that are truly lost in need of a physician? Does he know that kind of grace? That leads to the third. Do I believe that God's grace is for the worst of sinners? Do I believe that God's grace is for the worst of sinners? If we were to take all of you in this room and all of the sins that you have ever committed, every single one of you, every sin committed by every single one of you in this room, and then we took one person in this room, Bob or Betty, and we took all of those sins that all of us have committed in this room and we put them all on Bob, or we put them all on Betty, and they carried all of those sins. Is His grace sufficient? For a sinner like that. The Scriptures say His grace is. Every single sin. Fourth, do I see myself as the worst of sinners? I do if I have any Knowledge of my own heart. You want to know if you are mature in Christ? This is one of the great tests. Do you see yourself as chief among sinners? 
Or as Paul will say in Philippians 2, do you consider others as better than yourself? Or there are some that you think are better than you in Christ. But you're really better than those over here that don't understand this or don't get that or seem to be falling into that trap. Oh, one of the greatest tests of our maturity is do I see myself as chief among sinners? Man or woman who has any measure of the knowledge of their own heart does. Finally, do you think your sin is so great that it cannot be covered by the grace of Christ? You think it is that great? You know, Mount Sinai, Moses was up on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. You will have this party that breaks out down below. Or the nation will commit themselves to false worship. They will shape that golden calf. And I imagine that there were those that jumped in right at the beginning. There were those that held back for some time. There were those that were dancing and singing. There were those that were just singing. There were probably those that were a little more reluctant in coming and were maybe even warning people at the beginning. But by the end, they were all guilty. They had all participated in some way. Maybe different in manner and maybe different in measure, but they all contributed in some way. And when Moses comes down from that mountain and when God is ready to pour out His grace upon these people, it didn't matter the manner or the method that they had participated. They were all saved the exact same way. He lifted up the bronze serpent and they were just to look at it. And so it is true for every single sinner. No matter the manner or the method or the measure of your sins, all are saved the exact same way by looking at what has been lifted up. Christ. Just looking to Christ. All are saved the same way. Your sin is not too great. You only need to look to Christ held up before you and you live. And if that's the case for you today, then all you can do is erupt in doxology. You find yourself led to the exact same place that Timothy is here where he closes to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a God worth worshiping. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we do exalt You this morning. 
thankful that you are a God of such unfathomable grace. Truly, if the Scriptures did not reveal to us that you were a God of such grace, we would say that it is unbelievable. And it is a creation of the imaginations of men. Oh, we stand and we sit here thankful today that You are a God of such grace. For each of us as Christians in this room, may we wallow in this grace. May we roll in this grace. May we be suffused with this grace. May we find that we are living and breathing this grace. And for those that not yet know this grace this morning. We pray that in Your exceeding kindness, You would pour out grace upon their soul that they would have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That they would find that where there has been death, now there is life. And life abundant. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.